Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 29, Exodus chapters 30 and 31. Well, today we're going to continue to study various aspects of the tabernacle, its furnishings and the priesthood that the Lord is establishing. And all of these things are designed to accomplish a way for him to dwell among his people, Israel. They're also accomplished to do some, also were accomplished to do something very, very important. We're at a time in which writing was not done very much. And the way that tradition was handed down for centuries and centuries, the way these scriptures were handed down for centuries and centuries was by word of mouth. They were memorized. They were taught to the next generation. Imagine without books, how are you going to explain to the masses anything? What could be better? than the sacrificial system, the priesthood, the tabernacle, and everything that went on around it. It's like watching a movie in which you live. You're going to get the message better than we're getting it. I promise you that. Let's read chapter 30 of Exodus together. Chapter 30 of Exodus. You're to make an altar on which to burn incense. Make it of acacia wood. It's to be 18 inches square and 3 feet high. Its horns are to be of one piece with it. Overlay it with pure gold. Its top all around its sides and its horns. And put around it a molding of gold. Make two rings, two gold rings for it under its molding. At the two corners on both sides. This is where the carrying poles will go. Make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Place it in front of the curtain by the ark for the testimony, in front of the ark cover that is over the testimony where I will meet with you. Aaron will burn fragrant incense on it as a pleasing aroma every morning. He's to burn it when he prepares the lamps. Aaron is to also burn it when he burn, when he lights the lamps at dusk. This is the regular burning of incense before Adonai through all your generations. You're not to offer unauthorized incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering. And you're not to pour a drink offering on it. Aharon is to make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he is to make atonement for it once a year throughout all your generations. It is especially holy to Adonai. Adonai said to Moses, when you take a census of the people of Israel and register them, each, upon registration, is to pay a ransom for his life to Adonai, to avoid any breakout of plague among them during the time of the census. Everyone subject to the census is to pay as an offering to Adonai half a shekel by the standard of the sanctuary shekel. Everyone over 20 years of age who is subject to the census is to give this offering to Adonai. The rich is not to give more or the poor less than the half shekel when giving Adonai's offering to atone for your lives. 
You're to take the atonement money from the people of Israel and use it for service in the tent of meeting so that it will be a reminder for the people of Israel before Adonai to atone for your lives. Adonai said to Moses, you're to make a basin of bronze with a base of bronze for washing. Place it between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Aaron and his sons will wash their hands and feet there. When they enter the tent of meeting, they're to wash with water so that they won't die. Also, when they approach the altar to minister by burning an offering to Adonai, they're to wash their hands and feet so that they won't die. This is to be a perpetual law for them throughout all their generations. Adonai said to Moses, take the best spices, 500 shekels of myrrh, half this amount of aromatic cinnamon, 250 shekels of aromatic cane, 500 shekels of cassia, all right, and one gallon of olive oil, and make them into a holy anointing oil. Blend it, perfume it, as would an expert for perfume maker. It will be a holy anointing oil. Use it to anoint the tent of meeting, the ark for the testimony, the table and all its utensils, the menorah, all its utensils, the incense altar, the altar for burnt offerings and all its utensils, and the basin with its base. You're to consecrate them. They will be especially holy, and whatever touches them will be holy. Then you're to anoint Aaron and his sons. You're to consecrate them to serve me in the office of priest. Tell the people of Israel, this is to be a holy anointing oil for me throughout all your generations. It's not to be used for anointing a person's body. And you're not to make anything like it with the same composition of ingredients. It's holy. You're to treat it as holy. Whoever makes any like it or uses it on any unauthorized person is to be cut off from his people. Adonai said to Moses, take aromatic plant substances, balsam resin, sweet anki root, bitter galbanum gum, these spices along with frankincense, all in equal quantities, and make incense, blended and perfumed, as would an expert perfume maker, salted, pure and holy. You're to grind up some of it very finely and put it in front of the testimony in the tent of meeting where I will meet with you. You're to regard it as especially holy. You're not to make for yourself, or for your own use, any incense like it with the same composition of ingredients. You're to treat it as holy for Adonai. Whoever makes up any like it to use it as perfume is to be cut off from his people. Well, chapter 30 begins by God giving Moses instructions for the second most holy piece of furniture in the sanctuary. And this item goes by a number of names, but the golden altar and the altar of incense are probably the two most common. Now, burning incense in conjunction with worship was a rather common practice of Middle Eastern cultures in that day. In fact, sacrificing incense burning and prayer were central to most of the known world's religions in that era. So were the Israelites just adopting these standard cultural activities they were already familiar with as their own? To a degree, yes. All right, But it was at God's decree that they do it. Jehovah deals with man in ways we can understand. So he has to deal with us on our level. It would be utterly impossible for God to deal with us on his level. Because we're men. It's 
for our sake that God gives us instructions and guidelines for living, for worshiping. God uses methods that were familiar and normal in ancient Middle Eastern cultures. But the ways and reasons for these various worship activities and what they meant were to be very different from other religions. Now, the older, overriding difference between what was customary pagan religious ceremony for that day and what Jehovah was ordaining for Israel was this. The pagan rituals all revolved around appeasing or indulging the supposed needs of one god or another. Okay. The Hebrew rituals were all about following instructions that God had laid down for the benefit of men. We must never think that anything we do of a worshipful nature, even if it is apparently commanded us of us in the Bible, is for God's benefit. He has no needs. He requires no appeasements. The context of the worship practices and ceremonies that are being created here in Exodus is of God showering his love and mercy upon his people and of establishing a system of justice in which man can be redeemed so that reconciliation between God and man can occur. It's about the Lord teaching his people who he is and the value he places on them. Of both giving the people a way to commune with God then and of preparing mankind for a future revelation that was going to bring permanent reconciliation between God and man. Now the altar of incense was fashioned in a way that we're pretty familiar with now. Acacia wood. Alright, acacia, an acacia wood frame was built and it was overlaid with pure gold. It was about 18 inches square, about three feet high. Right? And similar to that much larger brazen altar that, that rested in the outer courtyard, the, the, the altar where sacrificial animals were burnt up, the altar of incense had four horns on it, one on each corner, and a rim was built around the top of it. Right? And gold rings were put on it so that, so that um, wooden poles overlaid with gold could be put into it and it could be carried. Now this piece was to be placed in front of the veil, okay, this veil here, right, which separated the holy place from the holy of holies which was behind it. Right? This veil, remember, was called the parochet. So it took its place among two other furnishings um, that that already occupied that same space in the in the sanctuary, and that is the uh, menorah, the golden lampstand, and then the table of showbread right here. Okay, it was placed on the west side or west end um, of the holy of holy uh, of the holy place because in the holy of holies the ark was at the west end. Now, once per year, we're told, the golden altar of incense was to have sacrificial blood placed on its horns in order to purify it. Now, exactly when this cleansing of the altar of incense occurred isn't entirely sure. It would seem that it's on Yom Kippur, 
for one day per year, per year when the high priest entered the Holy of Holies and sprinkled blood on the mercy seat. I suspect that is when it happened. All right, Because on Yom Kippur, ancient writings indicate that the high priest performed a little bit different ritual uh, concerning the, the, the altar of incense. Now, a specially concocted incense was to be burnt continuously on the altar of in, on the altar of incense. The smoke of the incense, which curled upward, symbolized the prayers of God's people. Now, apparently, it was technically the high priest's job to add incense and hot coals to the altar to keep it burning. Although, since it was in the holy place where the regular priests were allowed, the regular priests probably tended this altar most of the time. Okay. Yehovah was quite specific about just when incense was to be added. It was at the time the menorah's lamp wicks were being trimmed and oil added. This happened twice a day, morning and evening. But now a warning is issued. No other kind of incense than that which God formulated is to be used. And the golden altar is not to be used for the various kinds of sacrificing of animals that had been ordained for use on the brazen altar. Okay. The word used in chapter 30, verse 9, to describe any alternate form of incense is in Hebrew, keteret sarah. Most Bibles will translate this as strange or unholy or alien. All very acceptable translations. There's kind of a double meaning intended here, though. Okay, first, it is that that which God declares holy is holy. Nothing else. Okay, the, the reality is that the ingredients, expensive ingredients, used in that special incense didn't have some magical quality all right, when they were mixed together in proper proportion and then burned. Rather, God simply declared it to be holy, and therefore, all else was not. Okay? This demonstrates a principle of God that we need to always keep in mind. You see, pagan religions believed that certain ground, certain foods, certain formulations of incense or potions, um, certain animals and other items were of themselves inherently holy or magical. God says nothing of itself is holy. It is his decision by fiat to simply declare what's holy and what isn't. It doesn't necessarily meet any human rationale. For instance, Mount Sinai was just dirt and rock like the rest of planet Earth. When God was present and active there, he declared that it was holy because his holiness is so transcendent that it literally infects whatever is near it with his holiness. Okay. And the summit of Mount Sinai was virtually untouchable except by Moses for that very reason. When Jehovah was no longer present and active there at Mount Sinai, it wasn't any more holy than any other mountain in the world. Nowhere, by the way, are we told to revere Mount Sinai or to stay away from its summit or to treat it as a permanently holy spot or to make a pilgrimage to it. 
Certainly, it must be awesome to stand at the very place Moses received the Ten Commandments, but that does not make the place holy. On the other hand, God has said he has set apart forever a very specific piece of dirt for himself and his people, Israel. The dirt and rocks and foliage found there isn't particularly unique. I don't know why God chose that particular piece of geography and all the earth to set apart for himself as an inheritance to Israel, but he did. Just as with that special incense he instructed to be made for the golden altar. Okay, It's just not for us to scrutinize and apply scientific methods or man's philosophies to determine why this and why that is holy and something else isn't. Now sadly, it's come to the point today that if what the word of God says doesn't meet with the approval of man's intellect, we say the word must be an error. Okay, God's declaration of what is and what isn't has nothing to do with man's view of reason and logic. Now the second part of this double meaning I was telling you about, of the phrase keteret sarah, is that it, it, it was common for other cultures to burn incense to their gods, and they used incense really as an ancient deodorizer. Right? Not only could those other incenses not be used, but also this special holy incense was not to come from outside the nation of Israel. They couldn't outsource its making. Okay. A very good modern word that captures the essence of Keteret Sarah is incense from an outsider. Okay. God is putting another layer onto that wall that was meant to separate Israel from everybody else. Now, in order for the high priest to burn the incense, he had to follow a very specific procedure. First, he had to perform the morning and then later the evening animal sacrifice at the brazen altar. Next, he had to ritually wash himself at the brazen labor. Remember what we talked about last week. That means hands and feet. He didn't jump in it and take a bath. Finally, he had to enter the holy place before he could approach the altar of incense. When the high priest added coals to keep the incense burning, right on top of the golden altar, they had to be coals taken from the brazen altar where the sacrifices were made. Later, we're going to hear of this term, strange fire. We just heard about strange incense, strange fire. No strange fire was to wind up on the golden altar. Okay. The word used for strange fire was the one we just learned, Sarah. So strange fire literally meant outsider fire. Okay. Strange fire was essence was was uh, rather essentially coals taken from anywhere except the brazen altar. Okay. As we move along, particularly in Leviticus, we're going to study further requirements and, and prohibitions in the tabernacle rituals. But for now, let me just draw you a picture of the symbolism that's being painted here regarding the golden altar. What all the ritual surrounding the altar of incense is demonstrating is that when we come to God in prayer, it's on his terms. We can't do it any way we like. He set out a model a procedure, if you would, for us to be able to come to him in prayer. 
Recall a certain procedure in prayer that Jesus set out for us? Our Father who art in heaven. Remember he said, they said, Jesus, how should we pray? And he said, here is how you ought to pray. And he set down the Lord's Prayer. That's the model of how we're to pray. Not just any way we feel like it. Now, Torah means teaching, her instruction. Everything the priests did was teaching the people some aspect about the kingdom of God. In the case of the burning of incense on the golden altar, God was teaching that first, to come to him in prayer, we must be cleansed by means of blood at the altar of sacrifice, just as the high priest had to do. The cross is the true altar of sacrifice that the brazen altar symbolized. Yeshua is the sacrificial animal that makes clean. We, we have to identify with what Yeshua did for us in order to be cleansed as the first step in being able to commune with God. Second, we must be washed clean by means of water, just as the high priest did, and all the other priests, as a matter of fact, did, in the ritual washing at the brazen labor. Christ said he is our living water. We're told that we must be washed clean by him before we can approach Jehovah. But there's also another aspect. The ritual washing is also symbolic of confessing and repenting of our sins. Okay. Just as the priest washed the dirt and the soil from their hands and feet, we have to wash those sins off of us, get them behind us if we're to approach the Most High God. Next, we have to enter the holy place. In Moses' day, the holy place was a tent. Later, it would be a wooden stone building that we call the temple. But today, the holy place is you. Okay, it's within us. It's where the Spirit of God rests. Okay, we don't have to be anywhere in particular, nor go to a special building to meet God. In fact, as believers, there's no place we can go that we're not in his presence. The priests of Moses' day had to enter into the sanctuary in order to be in a holy place. The sanctuary today is literally us, the disciples of Yeshua. Now, one more thing about the altar of incense, and we'll move on. I said that it symbolized prayer, and some of you might say, well, where in the world does it say that? All right, well, truthfully, it doesn't directly say. However, I'd like to show you something that I hope helps you see the cohesiveness and oneness of the Bible. Further evidence that the wilderness tabernacle is an earthly physical model of God's heavenly spiritual tabernacle and proof that the smoke of the incense does indeed represent prayer that has been made acceptable to God. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but here, l listen to Revelation 8. Okay. Now in Exodus, we're going to see God creating a set-apart nation, or as I've called it on other occasions, the Gospel, Act 1. Okay. And in Revelation, we see the final redemption of his set-apart nation and the final chapters of human history as we know it, 
Gospel Act 3, the final act. Here's what Revelation 8, 1 through 4 says. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for what seemed like about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and they were given seven shofars. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a gold incense bowl, and he was given a large quantity of incense to add to the prayers of all God's people on the gold altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense went up with the prayers of God's people from the hand of the angel before God. That's quite a visualization, isn't it? I don't think we need to be concerned that we might be indulging in allegory when we speak of the symbolism of the altar of incense is the prayers of God's people that by adding the quality of the incense, in other words, by adding a quality of holiness, these prayers have become acceptable to God. And we also know that in heaven there exists a spiritual altar of incense. Now, verse 11, though, takes this sudden turn. And we see Yehovah instructing Moses to take a census. Now, new scholarship has determined for a number of good reasons and that this census spoken of here used to be thought that it was the same census that's going to be spoken of in Numbers chapter 1. It does not appear to be so. All right. The coins collected from this sentence, from this census rather, were told in some documents from outside the Bible were going to be used to form the sockets for the posts of the sanctuary. Now, although this is a one-time happening, a more permanent ordinance is going to be set in place later in the Torah. However, beyond the use of the money, the spiritual purpose for this census all right, is another thing. Suffice it to say, there are several reasons to take a census. Right? The one that is given us here in Exodus it is that it is for each man to pay a ransom for his life. Now, this idea of ransom is really at the heart of God's plan of salvation. A, a ransom being paid is actually what redeems us. Okay? We of the church speak of being redeemed and of the plan of redemption quite often, but I don't think very many of us know what it actually means or where that idea even came from. In a nutshell, it's this. Yehovah set up a system whereby every father had to pay to the priesthood a set amount of money to redeem the life of the first male child born to him. We call him the firstborn. And typically this amount of money, which was a small amount, half shekel, had to be paid within 30 days of that child's birth. In addition, though, there's another facet or another kind of redemption in the Bible that involved a kinsman redeemer. And the idea here had to do with a relative being responsible, actually duty-bound, to redeem the property or life of a family member who had fallen into debt or who was going to lose their property or be sold as a slave or both to satisfy a creditor. Now, while this system was used to teach an everyday practical element of civil law, 
for Israel. It was created by God to teach the principle that is this. We humans are born into debt to God. He created us. He owns us. We're the debtors. He's the creditor. Further, as descendants of Adam and Eve, we're born as sinners, and by all rights, we really ought to be destroyed. Okay. If our lives are to be spared, we must be redeemed from our debt to God for not destroying us. Okay. And the debt results from sin. See, redemption is not free. Okay. It always costs. Somebody's going to pay. But it's not the person the infant firstborn, in debt who pays, it's his father. Even more, only a relative has the right and duty to perform the redemption. Another aspect is that the firstborn always carries a higher value than the remaining children. The firstborn was the favored son. He had the right to inherit double the amount of all of his brothers. And he would also inherit the rulership over that family when the father died. Let me state this again. God created this system of redemption, redeeming with that half shekel, as a shadow and a type of what was to come, just like he created the priesthood and the tabernacle as a shadow and a type of what was to come. It served a very practical purpose in addition to it being a shadow. But nonetheless, God did it the way he did it in order to teach mankind his principles. Yeshua was, of course, what the redemption system pointed to. First, it had to be made clear to Israel, then to every nation, that we even needed redemption. I mean, the, the whole problem with the unsaved world is that they just don't get the basic God principle that we're born needing to have our lives, our eternal lives, redeemed. And if our eternal lives aren't redeemed, we suffer eternal death. And in our church speak, we say we all need to be saved. Jesus, God's firstborn son, was given as the redemption price. He was given as the ransom okay, for redemption of his firstborn nation, Israel. So the census in Exodus is because Israel is God's firstborn nation, among all the nations of the world. And just like the firstborn son of a family, it has to be redeemed. I mean, this practice of redeeming indicates that on one hand, the people of Israel do indeed belong to God. They're his. He virtually owns them because he created them in every possible sense on the word. Uh, of the word. On the other hand, it shows that Israel is set apart and made holy. Now notice that each man must pay an amount of money, half shekel, as the redemption price, the ransom. And no matter how rich or how poor that man is, the price is the same. Naturally, it's the same exact thing for us. God paid the price of Jesus as the ransom for redeeming the debt that every human ever born owes to him for his eternal life. And whether a king, a slave, rich, poor, male, female, black, brown, white, it doesn't matter. 
Okay, the price is the same. No ups, no extras, no substitutes. Okay. Jesus is both our kinsman who has the right to redeem us and he's the price of that redemption. He's the ransom. Now in verse 17, Jehovah instructs Moses to manufacture this, this, the brazen altar. Or not brazen altar, but the brazen labor. Pardon me. It's a large bronze container simply for holding water. Okay? The size of the labor isn't really given, but it had to be pretty good size to hold all the water that would be needed. Now, whereas the ordinary Israelites would stand at the brazen altar, even killing the animals and cutting them up there, it was only the priests who were permitted to use the bronze labor full of water. The labor, therefore, was positioned between the altar of sacrifice, the brazen altar, and the entrance to the tent. It was positioned right here. Okay. Now, as we've already discussed, the purpose of the labor was to hold water for washing. The priests always had to wash before entering the sanctuary. The washing symbolized purification and regeneration. And procedurally speaking, the priests would walk up to the labor and they would dip their right hand into the labor, washing their right hand first, and then they'd bend down and wash their right foot. Then they wash their left hand and left foot. Now, just so you don't get the wrong picture again, only their hands dipped into the water. They washed their feet with their hands. Now, once again, get the picture of Jesus washing the disciples' feet with his hands. So let me remind you that this procedure is only for priests. Okay. Now the next subject of this chapter is the aromatic anointing oil that's to be used in rituals. And the money and the ingredients were not to come out of the funds given as offerings by the people to the tabernacle. We find out in the Talmud that this money was going to wind up being paid by tribal chieftains. You know, part of the reason for this is the enormous cost of these spices and perfumes that was needed. You know, the most important ingredients for this anointing oil had to be brought from long distances like Arabia, India, even China. They were rare and difficult to manufacture. Therefore, they were prime targets for bandits and thieves during their transport, and a goodly quantity never made it to its intended destination. And then we're given a list of spices that's to make up this oil. Myrrh, cinnamon, aromatic cane, and cassia. And after being blended by a specialist, it would be used to consecrate people and ritual implements into divine service. In fact, without this special concoction, it wasn't even possible to consecrate a priest into the service of the Lord. But verse 31 through 33 also tells us that this is the only permitted use for this special blend. No one but the priesthood can administer it and it can't be used on anything else. And the consequence of violating this command is terribly serious. It's called karet. And karet is what we usually translate to cut off. Now let me remind you that what's being contemplated here 
is being permanently separated from the community of God. And from God himself. It doesn't necessarily mean immediate physical death like execution, but it can. It is really the equivalent of eternal damnation without hope for redemption. So Karet is in most ways far more serious than mere physical death, and believe me, it was greatly feared. Okay. The final instructions of chapter 30 concerns the ingredients for the holy incense that would be burned on the altar of incense. It's to consist of four ingredients. Balsam resin, uh, an, an, anicha, all right, galbanum, and frankincense. Right. Balsam is a kind of tree. Right. And the ingredient is basically sap from the balsam tree. Anicha is not quite as well understood. The actual Hebrew word used here is shekelet. Right? And unless it has a double meaning, it's referring to a sea creature, a mollusk, actually, from which they extracted a fragrant substance. And the next ingredient is called galbanum, and it comes from a plant that only lives in the area of Persia. And then, of course, frankincense is added. Now, frankincense was a very expensive aromatic gum that comes from a tree that grows only in Arabia and in Yemen. Now, this special mixture is to be used only on the golden altar, never by, never for a common means. Okay. By common means, I'm indicating it's not to be used as a way simply to deodorize or to make the air smell better. Okay. One can only imagine in that day the temptation of doing that. All right. I mean, there were foul odors floating through every encampment in town and village from the burnt sacrifices, from animals literally living with the people. The slaughtering process, and of course, the people themselves didn't bathe all that regularly either. All right, now let's move on to Exodus chapter 31. We're going to get partway through that tonight. Exodus chapter 31. Short chapter. Adonai said to Moses, I have singled out Hutzlael, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, understanding, and knowledge concerning every kind of artisanry. He is a master of design in gold, silver, bronze, cutting precious stones to be set, wood carving, and every other craft. I have also appointed as his assistant Aholiab, the son of Akasmach of the tribe of Dan. Moreover, I have endowed all the craftsmen with the wisdom to make everything I have ordered you. The tent of meeting, the ark for the testimony, the ark cover above it, all the furnishings of the tent, the table, its utensils, the pure menorah and all its utensils, the incense altar, the altar for burnt offerings and all its utensils, the basin its base, the basin and its base, the garments for officiating, the holy garments for Aaron the, the priest, and the garments for his sons, so that they can serve in the office of priest, the anointing oil and the incense of aromatic spices for the holy place. They are to make everything, just as I have ordered you. Adonai said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel, You are to observe my Shabbats. For this is a sign between me and you through all your generations, so that you will know that I am Adonai who set you apart for me. Therefore, 
you are to keep my Shabbat because it is set apart for you. Everyone who treats it as ordinary must be put to death, for anyone who does work on it is to be cut off from his people. On six days work will get done, but the seventh day is Shabbat, for complete rest set apart for Adonai. Whoever does any work on the day of Shabbat must be put to death. The people of Israel are to keep the Shabbat, to observe Shabbat throughout all their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the people of Israel forever. For in six days Adonai made heaven and earth, but on the seventh he stopped working and he rested. When he had finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, Adonai gave him the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. So Moses is actually still up on the summit of Mount Sinai. He's been there since the beginning of chapter 24. And a lot of days have passed. All told, he will have been up there for 40 days. Now, I cannot even begin to imagine what transformation was going on inside of Moses right about now. Being in the presence of such pure holiness. I mean, how often I've heard a Christian leader say, we may not know the answer to that mystery until we stand before God. Well, Moses was standing before God. Okay. And the knowledge and understanding he must have been absorbing is mind-boggling. The questions that Moses must have formed in his mind as he was climbing up that mountain, privately, or rather private and deeply hidden doubts and suspicions and worries. I mean, these and so much more must have been addressed and answered because an entirely different Moses came down that mountain after each of the several times that he went up. As Moses' time in God's presence is nearing its end for now, and the last few instructions are being dispensed to Moses for the tabernacle, Jehovah specifically names the person who is to be the chief designer and maker of all that God has commanded to be instructed for the tabernacle. Now, while a lot of detail has been given, a whole lot more hasn't. Who was going to decide what the cherubim were to look like? How big was the brazen labor of water to be? How much water would it hold? Was a pillar for holding up the veil to the entrance to the Holy of Holies to be square or round or something else. I mean, these sorts of decisions were going to be left up to a pair of men that God himself chose and anointed for that purpose. And the head man would be Bethel. He was the grandson of Hur, who was Aaron's second in command. Interestingly, one might think that Aaron would have picked a son of his, or at least a fellow Levite, to be his assistant. But Hur, and therefore Betzalel, was from the tribe of Judah. Betzalel's name means in the shadow of El, or as we more commonly think of it, in the shadow of God. How appropriate for his task. And in his second command for this task, God assigns to Betzalel a man named Oholeof, which poignantly in Hebrew means in my father's tent. 
He was of the tribe of Dan. Now, notice that these two men represent two of the four dominant leader tribes, Judah and Dan. And we're told in verse 6 that Jehovah supernaturally placed what he wanted everything to look like in the minds of these two men. How did he do that if the Holy Spirit didn't live in them? I don't know. But if he can do that without the Holy Spirit actual, actually residing with them, imagine what a greater advantage we have as believers that the Spirit of God actually dwells inside of us. Well, in verse 12... Jehovah gives Moses the instruction to, once again, remind the people of the important nature of the Sabbath. In verse 13, where most Bibles will say, however, or nevertheless, you shall keep my Sabbaths, the Hebrew word being translated is ak. A translation other than however, or you shall, that better captures the sense of this in our American mindset is probably above all. That is, this is a reminder from Yehovah that in all the busyness that's going to transpire within the building of the tabernacle and the altars and the making of the priest's garments and all the implements and so on, that nothing is going to be more important to God than keeping the Sabbath. Now, what's clear in this section is that the rationale for observing the Sabbath law is not so much that it's associated with the covenant of Moses. Rather, it's associated with the creation. It is the creation narrative of Genesis where we find the Lord concluding his creative work and then declaring, the following day, to be set apart as holy. Let me take you back to Genesis 2. I'll just read it to you. Genesis 2, 1. Thus the heavens and the earth was completed, all their hosts, and by the seventh day God had completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day, and he sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. See, the idea here is that God ordained a day to celebrate the ceasing of his creative activity. And the form of the celebration amounted to men ceasing our normal work, our creative activity. But it's not that the Lord has ordained something new here at Mount Sinai with Moses all right, in making a Sabbath day or making it something only for Israel. Rather, he says, you have to keep my Sabbaths. In other words, the Sabbaths were long ago created. It wasn't new. It was Sabbath was created a long time ago, before Moses, for all men to observe. But apparently, men quit paying attention to the Sabbath. So the Lord says, Israel, now you're to make a point of observing it because you are a people set apart for me. So you will be, a, be an example of what people all over the world ought to be doing on the seventh day, Shabbat. And that is resting from their normal activities and, and instead 
being with their families, and worshiping the Lord. Now, I'm not going to go into my spiel about Saturday being the Sabbath and Sunday being the Lord's Day because it's just simply a historical fact and we've covered that, I think, sufficiently. Rather, I'd like to point out that the sense of this scriptural passage that we just read here is something like this. Once you start your building program, don't forget about me nor my commands to you because you're going to get very wrapped up in this. I mean, how human is it that when we get a calling from God to do something, we get all excited and off we go praising God and happily knowing that we have a divine purpose, purpose and then we let our passions run amok. We forget all about God's principles and commands as though they've been put into some kind of a state of suspended animation just for us because our project is so important it, it transcends his laws and commands. I mean, I've seen churches have construction crews working seven days a week to finish their building projects because of the excitement of getting near their goal. I've seen men and women neglecting their spouses or their children in the name of carrying out their ministries. I've seen ministries that were so on, so intent on producing as much as possible every day, making every minute count that prayer was all but forgotten. And much too often in our day and age, I see ministries that seemingly do nothing but raise money. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, for the next in a series of grand human enterprises that makes God a little more than a marketing tool. Okay. I find it most instructional that of all the principles and observances that God has now laid out, he commands Moses to put above all, above all, ah, put it above all, the Sabbath. And yet, here we are in our time, most believers claiming that St. Paul has instructed us that Sabbath is an obsolete and worthless observance. And where does this idea come from? It's from the idea that the Old Testament is old and the New Testament is new. So the new replaces the old. Okay. Never mind that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said the exact opposite. That not one jot or tittle, not the smallest detail would pass from the Torah until heaven and earth passed away and nothing could be more central teaching, more central teaching to the Torah than the Sabbath. And no, we can't get out of the Sabbath issue just because God says the Sabbath is a perpetual covenant between Israel and him. Because the New Testament makes it abundantly clear that when we accept Messiah Yeshua, we become part of a group called true Israel. We become the spiritual seeds of Abraham. We're joined to Israel's covenant with all their blessings and their obligations in the most real way there is spiritually. Not my words, but directly, plainly, literally from Scripture I've shown you on a number of occasions. Next week we'll uh, finish up chapter 31.